Welcome to the New Books Network. Immediately, the factory was recognized as this new stage of human development, this new thing under the sun. So people are completely fascinated by it. You know, people you might not associate with it. Daniel Defoe, for example, uh, visits this silk spinning mill in Derby, England, and he writes about it. Later on, James Boswell will go to the same factory. And they're all struck by, first of all, just the ingenuity of the machinery itself, its intricacy, its coordinated activity, the standardization of output. Things come out of it, one thing looking just like the one before it. The scale of production, all these things knock out intellectuals and observers of all kinds who see this as the opening up of new human possibilities, including for a much greater level of prosperity and a promise of new kind of bounties. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books and Intellectual History channel on the New Books Network. My name is Mark Malloy, and I'm the reviews editor at Make a Literary Magazine. I'm talking today with Professor Joshua B. Friedman. Professor Freeman, who specializes in 20th century U.S. history and U.S. labor history, is a distinguished professor at Queens College and the Graduate Center, City University of New York. Professor Freeman's previous books have included American Empire, 1945 to 2000, The Rise of a Global Power, The Democratic Revolution at Home, A History of Postwar America, Working Class New York, Life and Labor Since World War II, An Analysis of New York's Rise and Fall as a Model Working Class City from the 1940s to the 1970s, and In Transit. The Transport Workers Union in New York City, 1933 to 1966. A History of New York Transit Workers from the Great Depression to the Monumental 1966 Transit Strike. He has also edited volumes on the labor movement and written chapters, articles, reviews, and essays. Professor Freeman's most recent book, and the book under discussion today, is 2018's Behemoth, A History of the Factory, and the Making of the Modern World, published by Norton. It is a sweeping global history of the rise of the factory and its effects on society that traces the factory's history over the past 300 years, from the cotton mills of the north of England of the late 18th and early 19th centuries to America, where first the New England textile mills, then the massive steelworks of Pennsylvania and Ohio, and most recently, the assembly lines of Detroit and River Rouge helped build an empire, to the Soviet Union and its satellites, and finally, to the rise of massive complexes in China and Vietnam. Behemoth is a history of technology and economics, of course, but also of sociology, politics, and labor movements, even art criticism. 
Above all, it is an argument for the outsized role the factory had in making the modern world. It is also a timely book, considering how large the factory looms over U.S. and indeed global politics today. Welcome, Professor Freeman, and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mark. Uh, delighted to be here. I was wondering if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself, both your training and the focus of your work. Sure. I, I've been a historian a long time. I, I actually didn't start that way. I was a science uh, kid and undergraduate, but I had an interest in history. And uh, after a couple of years out of college, I uh, ended up doing a graduate degree first uh, at City College and then at Rutgers, where I did my PhD. And I was particularly drawn to studying and thinking about the role of workers in American history, how they at certain moments played an important role in, in shaping the dynamics of the country. So I became a labor historian, but a labor historian very broadly defined, looking at, at workers and the organizations that they created and their struggles, but also at their way of life and at work itself, at the history of the processes of work and how they've changed over time. And it was that sort of last interest that, that really kind of drew me into the project we're talking about today. I was wondering if you could quickly clarify what we are talking about when we talk about factories. I think everyone has a, a general sense of, of what a factory is, but for many of our listeners, that notion probably comes from film or television and may not correspond exactly with the reality. What are we talking about when we talk about factories? Well, you know, I don't think there is one standard definition of a factory, but generally speaking, it's, it's a pretty simple idea. You know, when we talk about a factory, we're talking about a place where a fairly large number of people are, are gathered together to engage in some production process, some making of things in some coordinated fashion. And generally, they're doing so using equipment which has some external power force. It's not simply human power being at work. So it could be, you know, 12 people in a, a sort of relatively small operation making a very specialized good, or it could be tens or hundreds of thousands of people making cell phones in China. Huge amount of variety, but I think this idea of, of a group of people in coordinated production with external power is, is the central piece of how I would define it. Interesting. The tying in of external power. That makes sense. And that's why I suppose the beginning of this history is contemporaneous with the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. There were presumably settings previously where groups of people worked together and utilized external power. Water wheels, for example. But the factory and the Industrial Revolution arise alongside advances in understanding energy and its manipulation. These new sources of energy usher in new modes of labor, and that is part of the reason as to why the history of the factory coincides with the history of the Industrial Revolution. The external source of power is a crucial piece of this story. Yes, through most of human history, Things were made by either just individuals or very small groups of people, largely within households, as, as a kind of domestic production. Things like 
shoes or or cabinets or uh, packing containers, whatever you might think of, were made uh, that way. Now, there were some exceptions. Shipyards, for example, the the arsenal in, in Venice is a famous example that might have had dozens or hundreds of people, but they were very unusual. Two dozen people would be extremely large in England, let's say, in 1700 for the making of things. So the scale of production really leaps with the beginning of the factory. And it is coincident, as you suggest, with the use of external power, primarily water power. Now, water power was used for mills for grinding or for sawmills prior to the development of the factory. But again, these are small operations with very small people. I start my book with a silk factory that was built in Derby, England in 1721. It had 300 workers. That was vastly larger than the uh, typical productive enterprise. You know, it's just a quantum leap in scale. So it's this large number of people, water power, you know, that kind of bursts on the scene, this new system of making things. It's one of the many, many examples in history where an existing technology, which previously had not functioned in a revolutionary capacity, suddenly begins to. Previously, the technology existed, say, water wheels, but for some reason it hadn't dawned on humans how to truly exploit that technology. And around the beginning of our story, that suddenly clicks into place. Why did the change happen then? It is partially due to a new understanding, new conception of energy, new technologies of energy. It has something to do with new conceptions around how to organize labor. But something clicks into place, and we see an exponential explosion in energy, productivity, and power. Yeah, no, absolutely. And of course, some of it is the explosion in demand. I mean, in this case, it was for silk cloth. And as is often the case, you know, this was the substitution of an advanced production method for earlier production methods coinciding with a geographical switch. So instead of England importing silk cloth, now there's an effort to make silk thread in England itself and weave silk cloth there, it's, it seems an economic opportunity. And, and you have a kind of entrepreneurial group that, that invests in combining sort of primitive um, spinning equipment that had been developed in Italy with water power and scale, and you get the first factories. I mean, this is a bit of a, uh, a dead end for England because uh, silk turns out not to be a, a mass product. It's too expensive. But it, it sets the template for cotton, which, of course, will be central to the entire Industrial Revolution. Okay, next, I propose we move on to a 10,000-foot overview of the history of the factory, which is also a history of modern manufacturing. I often find that it's helpful to provide our listeners with a top-level overview up top. So everyone has a clear sense of the big picture before the discussion gets nuanced. This history, as I noted in my introduction, begins in England, then travels through uh, America and the Soviet Union and ends in China and Vietnam. The factory system spans, I stress, and has transformed the entire globe. But the trail of the history of the factory 
was blazed in the aforementioned countries. So we focus our discussion on them as representative. Professor Freeman, can you quickly walk us through the history of the factory and of manufacturing, and perhaps touch on some of the crucial developments, including Taylorism, Fordism, etc.? Sure. It's, it's a big story. It takes me over 300 pages to tell it in my book, but I will try to give a very concise, as you say, sort of high-level uh, overview. There had been things sort of looking like factories in northern Italy and elsewhere prior to 1721, but it's really with the introduction of silk spinning factories that England adopts the factory model, and it's there that it really develops. And it is the introduction of this mechanized set of procedures to create thread, which can then be woven into cloth, which really is the first place where the factory becomes so central because it's enormously more efficient than the old system, which was individual spinning on spinning wheels, painstakingly slow to create either silk thread or or cotton thread or other kinds of fiber. And starting in the 1720s, you get this uh, introduction of, of buildings that, by the way, look recognizably like a factory. If you looked at a picture of the 1721 silk spinning mill in Derby, you would say, oh, it's a factory. It's remarkable how quickly the kind of iconic forms develop. I'm just guessing here. Is that a a large rectangular box to house the workers and then some additional smokestacks or some power generating section off to one or more of the sides? No smokestacks because this is water-driven. So it's on the Darby River. The water goes under the building. It drives spinning wheels. There's, it's a five-story stone building with a kind of grid of windows to b- bring light into it. So it's a kind of form that you would still see in, in the older parts of the United States. In New England, you'd see a million buildings that look quite like this. 300 workers, mostly children, and instantly recognize at the time as some breakthrough, as a new kind of thing. And promoted, by the way, by the British government, which is interested in promoting its own industry and as part of a kind of mercantilist strategy. But it's the cotton industry, which comes later in the 18th century, where this model, this template is now picked up to create cotton thread through spinning on mechanized equipment systems, and then slightly later introducing mechanical weaving, looms which are power-driven. And this leads to a tremendous increase, further increase in the scale of production. By by 1800, you have factories with 1,000 workers in a single factory, soon 2,000 workers. This is, of course, part of a global cotton system industry, which includes, I should mention, the tremendous expansion of slavery in the United States, because much of the cotton that is being processed in these British factories comes from the United States. And by the early 19th century, you begin to get the introduction of steam replacing water as the power source. With water-powered factories, you have to locate the factory at a setting where there is falling water to power the machinery. And this often is in rural and isolated areas, hard to find workers, hard to get equipment. Once you get steam in, you could create places like Manchester, where 
uh, you have an urban setting uh, with a workforce that can be housed, that can be drawn upon in the immediate proximity, and the kind of industrial city begins to develop in the early 19th century. So it's the textile industry, particularly cotton manufacturing in England, that the factory really explodes onto the historical stage. And other countries, including the United States, copy the British system, often stealing the technology. Industrial espionage is a very central part of the story. In the United States, we begin to get the very first cotton spinning factories. They're in Rhode Island at the very end of the 18th century. And then on a larger scale in the first decades of the 19th century, in elsewhere in New England, particularly in Massachusetts, and most famously in Lowell, Massachusetts, which becomes a major cotton center with, with dozens of factories, each employing you know, 100 or 200 or 300 workers. So it's this textile industry that creates the model, but then other industries move to factory production. Iron and steel, which is quite a different technical process, less standardized, more batch as opposed to continuous, but it soon eclipses textile at the kind of forefront of the development of the factory. And by the way, in sheer scale, by the 1870s, you have iron and steel factories in France and Germany with 7,000 workers. You know, that is a, in a single factory complex. That, that's gigantic. And then you move into factories that are making kind of more complex products, metal products with lots of parts, things like guns and clocks and sewing machines and bicycles and ultimately cars. And, and these depend upon the perfection of the idea of interchangeable parts, the manufacturing in factories of standardized parts so that, you know, when you're making a gun or a sewing machine, you could create all the parts separately and essentially then take any individual example of, of each part and connect them to other examples and create a product. This, by the way, is not a simple thing to do. It takes decades to perfect, huge amount of ingenuity and investment. And the culmination of this is the automobile factory. And, and you know, as part of this, you get what's sometimes called the detailed division of labor. The idea of instead of a single gunsmith making an entire gun, you'll break the process down into many steps using machinery which require less skill level than the creation of the entire product. And this becomes the model for the mass production industries of the 20th century, uh, you know, most famously the automobile factory. And the final step there is, is the assembly line, the introduction of systems that physically move the product as it's being made in front of workers, each of whom does a relatively simple step to add to the process of completing the entire product. So by the 1920s, you really have the modern factory production system and all its components in place. And from there, it's a kind of dissemination story as other countries pick up this model of mass production where the United States is really the chief innovator. And you see this picked up in Europe. And what's so interesting, and I, I really discuss this at some length in my book, is that this becomes the template not just within the capitalist corporate economies, but is actually picked up in the socialist world too, first in the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 1930s, and then after World War II in Eastern Europe, 
and in China as well. So it's, it's a long story, and this is a very simplified version of it, but there's a direct line between the Darby Silk Mill with, in 1721 and Foxconn in China with 300,000 workers making cell phones for Samsung and Apple. That was a brilliant overview. I, I do have a quick question. I don't know how easy this is to answer. The early steps in terms of steam power, to what degree were those pioneered by people working in an applied capacity, people laboring in the factories, say? Or to what degree did more theoretically-minded scientists trying to come to terms with what heat is or what energy is more abstractly, to what degree did they pave the way for these new advances in energy extraction? I, I think around this time, maybe a little later, scientists were working to formulate the laws of thermodynamics as we know them today. So that timing is interesting. To what degree was the steam innovation, the innovation in steam energy, made on the ground by laborers? Or to what degree was it made by people writing, say, with a pencil and a piece of paper? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not a great expert on this. Steam power was actually perfected not for the factory, but for the coal mine. The first really important application of steam power was to pump water that seeped into mines. And you know this really is critical to the development of coal production in England, which in turn is linked to both factories and the railroad. And I think that the two processes you describe were much more closely linked than perhaps they are today. That there is a kind of, yes, there's a kind of world of, 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 of I guess we call them scientists, you know, who are working in a more theoretical vein on this. But many of them, are, like later on, a guy like Thomas Edison, also are sort of involved in practical creation, almost what you might in a derogatory sense called tinkering to create the actual machinery. And there's a kind of feedback loop in the experience of actually trying to develop practical machinery that raises new theoretical problems that then in turn get addressed. So I think there's a pretty close linkage. There's a huge historical debate. Why England, uh, as opposed to, let's say, China, why as the center of the early industrial revolution? And one factor maybe not the most important, but one is the fact that it's an arena where scientific thinking has emerged early on and it is harnessed immediately to these kinds of practical problems, which will be critical to the development of, you know, uh, the railroad, the factory, the mining industry, and so forth. There's a very good old TV show called Alistair Cook's America. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah, no, I remember it. Yeah. It's really good. He has a fascinating section on the American arms industry. Principally, they were manufacturing rifles or muskets. I don't know to what degree this would be part of your story or not, but he's talking about how the Americans made advances in making weapons that relied on interlocking parts, also in precision manufacturing, boring out perfectly cylindrical barrels so that shots fired true over long distances. And without making any excessively strong claims, he links these advancements in manufacturing with the outcome of the Revolutionary War 
and then beyond that to America's present-day gun culture. Yeah, it's a little tangential, but not really, because not in the Revolutionary War era, but not all that long after, the gun industry becomes the critical arena for the development of new kinds of machine tools and new production approaches and ultimately the introduction of interchangeable parts. And what's interesting about this is that it's the military involvement that makes this possible. That a lot of manufacturing innovations in the short term may not be cost saving. They often involve huge capital investment, a lot of trial and error and so forth. The military doesn't care much about costs. In the case of guns, it wants guns that are easy to repair in the field. And interchangeable parts makes that possible. So they're willing to invest in places like the Springfield Armory in Springfield, Massachusetts, which becomes a major center, or the Armory in Harpers Ferry, where constant experimentation is being done to create interchangeable parts. So one thing that America has benefited in the history of its factory production is heavy military investment. And it's true in the era of the 1830s and 40s. Uh, of course, it's completely true in the post-World War II period when new technologies like computer-controlled machine tools are the result of military investment. So, you know, we don't normally think of this connection, but actually militarism has been central to the development of America's productive capacity and its leadership or its one-time leadership in this area. I was going to say, and this is again somewhat tangential, but there's an extraordinary book called Turing's Cathedral, truly one of the best books I've ever read. It's about mathematics and technology and government in the years after the Second World War. During the Second World War, of course, the German and occupied universities were purged of their Jewish faculty, and there was a great flight to America. Uh, in fact, most American universities would not accept these Jewish refugees to their faculties, but Princeton would, or in particular, the Institute for Advanced Study. The Institute for Advanced Study took them in. Incredible minds, as we see only a handful of times in a generation. Albert Einstein, Kurt Gödel, Hermann Weyl, John von Neumann. And the Institute for Advanced Study was really transformed overnight into arguably the premier intellectual institution in the world. Anyway, the main figure of the story is a, a man named John von Neumann, one of the greatest intellects who ever lived, a, a truly fascinating character. And Turing's Cathedral tells the story of how he was enlisted and funded by the military and how they utilized his immense intellectual power in winning the Second World War, they had him working on calculating ballistic trajectories, but also on developing the atomic bomb. And part of that story is the story of the building of the modern computer as we know it. I think the modern computer architecture is still called the von Neumann architecture. It's a fascinating story, and I think a brilliant illustration of the military's involvement in industry and technology. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, one of the implications of what you're saying, just to broaden it out a bit, is that the factory did not develop out of a kind of fanciful free market. It is the development of 
at least in part, government policy. You know, in the case of England, it's very much designed to reduce imports and promote exports. And therefore, there were all kinds of incentives and regulations from tariff policy to subsidies for various kinds of production, which helped create the factory system. And of course, also, by the way, you know, uh, England, like Italy before it, tries to keep the secrets of factory production inside their own country. It's illegal to export, for example, factory equipment or even for skilled workers to leave the country if they knew how factories worked. So the state, whether it's the military or through tariffs or through subsidies or in a thousand other ways, is absolutely central to the creation of the factory without state intervention. In other words, without the broader public's involvement through the state, the factory would never have come into being and, and its, its, its dissemination never would have occurred. To highlight the immense impact the factory system has had on the world, could you quickly paint the picture for us of the world in the years before the invention of the factory? And then contrast that with a portrait of the world the factory has created. Well, you know, that's a huge question. And, and, and let me just try to very uh, sketchily suggest what a vast difference there is before and after. I mean, for most of human history, the vast majority of all people were poor. They lived in rural settings. They knew very little about the outside world. They lived in a world of disease and death, even in places that you think of as uh, relatively developed, let's say uh, like France. In the mid-18th century, only half of all children born in France, or parts of France anyway, lived to the age of 20. In England, life expectancy did not reach 40 in the mid-18th century. This was a very constrained and, and narrow society, and one that did not experience something we take for granted almost, growth, economic growth. If you go from the beginning of the Christian age up to the first factories, there is essentially zero per capita economic growth on a global basis. And then comes the Industrial Revolution, and it's not just the factory. Increased trade, increased transportation, new technologies, lots of other things going on. But now you get this beginning of steady economic, well, not steady economic growth, but ongoing economic growth, often just like 1% a year. But cumulatively, this is utterly transformative. So things that were once rarities, clean water, sanitation, reliable sources of food, you know, now become standard for much of the population, first in the industrialized countries and then in much of the world. So today, you know, life expectancy in places like England and France is over 80. People can reliably expect, I know it sounds funny to be saying this is the age of pandemic, but but in general can, can expect a kind of certainty about the basic necessities of life. They have leisure and this uh, way of life, is, even just over the last 20 years, has become expanded to hundreds of millions of people all over the world. So it's just an entirely different kind of life. Now, of course, there are many dark sides to this, too, which may come to eliminate us. You know, I mean, one, of course, is climate change. 
and the tremendous ecological environmental damage that the Industrial Revolution has done to our planet, that's part of this change too. But put together, good and bad, uh, the last 300 years has just been utterly and totally transformative. For some reason, your responses keep bringing to mind old BBC TV shows. This time the show you brought to mind is a show called Connections, a BBC show by the British historian James Burke. The show talks about technology and the impact of technology and the way multiple unrelated technologies can combine into new unforeseen technologies. Burke starts the series off by putting the viewer in the present moment. You're living in a city, he says, and suddenly all the power goes out and it goes out permanently. It turns out that the technological foundation of society has collapsed. What do you do? In his narrative, the first thing to do is to get out of the city. There's going to be, there won't be any food there. There won't be any water. You cannot survive there. So you have to leave. So you head off on foot, you cross a bridge and you head off into the suburbs and then past the suburbs into a more rural area. The hope is ultimately you find your way to a piece of land where food can be grown. So either you find one that's unoccupied or you have to forcefully remove the occupants. This is, after all, a fight for survival. Assuming you can do all this, you can make it out of the city, you make it to a farm that you are in charge of. One final question remains. Are you able to operate a plow? If not, Burke suggests, you will likely still die. And of course, for many listeners or viewers, the answer is no. And the point he is making is that the modern world the factory has helped develop has become so immense and so complicated that we are no longer in charge of our own lives. We are dependent upon the immense infrastructure around us. And were that to fail, most of us would not survive. I think it's a good illustration of the transformation of the world that we live in. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned this. It is a bit tangential, but my father was an infantryman in World War II, and he was uh, in Europe and fought his way to, into Germany. And, you know, I remember he always told me that one thing he learned from that experience was the fragility of urban life. Uh, when the battlefront would pass through a, a city in France or Belgium or Germany, power would be shut off and communication and transportation would be shut down. Suddenly, you know, uh, life becomes extraordinarily precarious incredibly quickly. And of course, anyone who's lived through a blackout in a U.S. city in recent years, they've had a touch of that experience too. So yeah, this is a completely transformed world. Could you quickly outline for us the reception that the rise of the factory was met with? The awe along with the utopian and dystopian responses that it elicited? Sure. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me is how immediately the factory was recognized as this new stage of human development, this new thing under the sun. So people are completely fascinated by it. You know, people you might not associate with it. Daniel Defoe, for example, uh, visits this silk spinning mill in Derby, England, and he writes about it. Later on, James Boswell will go to the same factory. And they're all struck by, first of all, just the ingenuity of the machinery itself, its intricacy, its coordinated activity. 
the standardization of output. Things come out of it, one thing looking just like the one before it. The scale of production, all these things knock out intellectuals and observers of all kinds who see this as an opening up of new human possibilities, including for a much greater level of prosperity and a promise of new kind of bounty. So you see that in England, when the factory comes to the United States, you see the same thing. Lowell, Massachusetts becomes a, a standard stop on the tour of America for Europeans. You know, Charles Dickens, Anthony Trollope, de Tocqueville, they all go there. They all write at length about it. Politicians go there. Andrew Jackson goes there when he's president. And again, it's this it, it, awe of the productivity, the precision, the ingenuity. But then, of course, there's, as you mentioned, the uh, dystopian side of it, too. In, in England, this particularly focuses on the widespread use of child labor in factories. Uh, this was true from the get-go and continued all through the 19th century. Oppressive work, long, long hours in which the pace of human activity is now set by the machinery. Instead of the machine being the tool of the person, in a way, the person becomes the tool of the machine. Uh, so there's a lot of criticism of that, the stunting of growth of these children, the terrible health uh, implications. And there's also early recognition of the environmental damage. You know, you think of Blake talking about the dark satanic mills. And dark is not just a metaphor. It's also a commentary on the pollution from, from the use of coal-powered steam, right, to, to, for these factories. So that the skies of England, at least urban England, get darkened, the rivers get polluted. Uh, there's some sense of something devilish, satanic about the factory that certainly Blake and many others express. So there's from the beginning this recognition, and it continues all into the 20th century. I, I have a chapter that in part discusses the fascination with mass production among artists and intellectuals in the United States in the 1920s and 30s, when Ford factories become places for artists like Charles Sheeler or Diego Rivera or uh, photographers and writers like John Dos Passos as, as a symbol of, of modernity, of the new world coming with all of its possibilities and all of its horrors. There's a species of butterfly. I think Darwin studied them, uh, if not 20th century scientists did. In England, this species of butterfly had always been light colored. Then over the course of the late 18th and 19th centuries, the butterfly was transformed from a light-colored butterfly into a dark-colored butterfly. It was not transformed by soot, not directly. It wasn't that soot landed on it and it looked dark. No, it actually was dark. But it was transformed by soot indirectly, by natural selection. What happened was, because of all the soot, the white butterflies were easy targets by predators. And the occasional dark-colored butterfly was selected for by the situation. They were less likely to be targeted by predators. So over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries, the light-colored butterflies became rare, and the dark-colored versions became the dominant one. It's just one illustration of the levels of pollution of the Industrial Revolution. 
Sure. And, you know, of course, this problem is not just something from the past. You know, one of the ironies of COVID is that in many urban areas, COVID led to cleaner air than anyone's seen in, in, in generations. Also, animals are behaving differently. They're starting to change their behaviors to resume more natural behaviors that they were forced to curb due to the interference of human traffic, activity, civilization. Right. And of course, some of this is from fewer car miles being driven and less pollution from that. But some, a lot of it's from factory pollution, which is a huge problem in much of the world today and a tremendous health risk. Uh, and of course, the products being made in these polluting factories are things that you and I use all the time. Probably I am wearing some piece of clothing right now made in a factory that polluted the air and the water in a place like Bangladesh. This, this marks a good transition for us into a discussion of the history of organized labor and factories. I know this is something that you specialize in. So could you just touch on that briefly, maybe also on the Marxist critique of the factory system? Sure. I mean, the idea of workers banding together to promote their common interests predates the factory. That's true in Europe and it's true in the United States too. But the factory creates a labor force of a scale in a single location, really unprecedented, except in very exceptional situations like the military. And because of the oppressive nature of so much factory work, the, the wonders of the factory are accompanied by the creation of these terrible jobs where long hours, dangerous, repetitious, poorly paid. So you get the development of a workforce with shared commonality and intense interaction, which is kind of the, the basis of, of a new kind of a labor movement. It, it takes a long time to actually come, in part because in places like England, it's heavily repressed, not only by the employers, but by the government itself. So there are very long and, and, and difficult and in, often bloody struggles before you have the emergence of factory unionism. But it, it certainly marks a turning point. And you know, for, for, for the Marxist tradition, including many contemporary historians, they would argue that it's really a whole new class structure that's created by the factory, a kind of more modern structure of a kind of small employing class and a very large proletariat that is really utterly dependent on wage labor for its survival. Uh, and that this is the basis of uh, a modern labor movement and, of course, many other historical developments. So I think ultimately in the United States, the successful unionization of factories leads to a broader distribution of the tremendous bounty created by them and a kind of golden age, it's this combination of labor organization and industrialization that it seems to me leads to uh, what a lot of Americans now look back very fondly on. I think when people talk about make America great again, they're thinking of the post-World War II era when unionized factory labor allowed a person with a high school education to own a home to send kids to college, to take vacations, to retire, to do the kind of things that most ordinary people in human history never had a chance to get. So 
these stories are deeply intertwined. And of course, the whole history of Marxism and socialism is deeply tied to the factory. If you read Capital, a huge amount of it is about the cotton factory, not about some abstraction. But Marx, through his colleague, Frederick Engels, knows all about cotton factories because Engels works in managing one, you know, and all the specific examples draw upon this. For the Marxists, the factory is the opening up of a new stage of human history. In the short run, one of great oppression, one of organized theft, in their view, of the value created by the workers in those factories, but also laying the preconditions, because of its enormous efficiency and productivity, for a different kind of society. If you could sort of liberate this technology, this approach to production, from its economic and social setting and create a new setting, a, a kind of a classless setting, ultimately, in which this technology would be deployed. Fascinating. Could you talk to us quickly about the role of women in factories? I think today the the stereotypical factory worker that comes to mind is often pictured as a male. So I think many listeners and readers of your book may be surprised to learn of the outsized role that women have played in the history of factory. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, certainly in the early era of factory production, when textiles were the most important product being produced in factories, females and children were the dominant labor force. In spinning mills, you know, there were some men and they tended to be skilled mechanics who built or maintained machinery or sometimes who moved things that were heavy. But the vast bulk of the workforce were young women and children. And the factory was a space of women. And that was true not just in England, but in the United States in the textile industry, too. Lowell, Massachusetts was famous for the New England girls who would come to spend a few years working in the factory before they uh, got married and settled down back in the rural areas where they came from. So this was a kind of female space. And, you know, the image of the factory worker was often of the sickly child or the sickly female worker, not the brawny male that I think you're, you're suggesting. Now, with the eclipsing of textiles at the forefront of factory production by iron and steel, you shift to a very heavily male workforce. So these tend to be industry specific and metalworking industries tend to be heavily male, including the automobile factory, which then kind of eclipsed the steel mill as the exemplar of modern factory production. It's interesting, by the way, just a side note, that when the factory gets adopted in the Soviet Union, they have different ideas about gender roles. And women take a lot of blue collar jobs that in the United States in, in automobile factories or steel mills would be strictly male. So there's nothing natural about these divisions. They are socially determined. Today, women are all over factory production, you know, particularly in the places making mass consumer products, whether it's cell phones or clothing or coffee pots. If you look at the factories in China or Vietnam or, or these days Cambodia or even Ethiopia, you're going to see a predominantly female workforce. And again, 
not so different from Lowell, Massachusetts. Young women often coming not for a lifetime of employment, but for a stretch, uh, a particular phase of their lives. And the oppressive nature of factory production on a worldwide basis is perhaps disproportionately taking its toll on women more than men. I'll end with a question that I know is impossible to answer. What is the future of the factory? Or perhaps stated differently, what should the future of the factory be? Is it possible to find a moral middle ground that treats workers with dignity, but also satisfies the demands of billions of modernized humans? Are factories responsible for our society's emphasis on cheap disposable goods? Or is it possible to imagine a world that benefits from the efficiencies of factories, but does not suffer the immense litter factories creates? Just some speculative thoughts. Well, you know, there's a lot in that question you just asked. So let me let me take it apart a little bit. Uh, what do I think the future of the factory will be? Well, you know, of course, there's a huge discussion in literature about, you know, the end of factory production, automation, workless future. And I think a lot of that is is wildly hyperbolic. You know, I don't think we're going to see peopleless factory production in the near or midterm future. And I think a lot of what we're going to see is more of the same. We're going to see cheap labor in low wage parts of the world working to in very large establishments to make stuff that we can buy cheaply and then throw away. And I think that's certainly going to continue. There is some moving of production to places that are more developed, like the United States or even, let's say, Mexico, because with increased automation, labor costs are less important and you could manage to profitably produce certain kinds of things, particularly capital intense type products in the United States. There's a lot of discussion about distributed manufacturing using technologies like 3D printing. And I think that will be part of the future, although probably not for mass production. It's probably for more specialized parts, for replacement items. Uh, but that's an interesting development, too. So I think you'll see multiple kinds of futures. Now, what do I think the future should be? Is there some way to maintain the tremendous bounty and productivity of the factory shedding it of its ills. And, you know, that's historically been a great debate. And some people say the ills of the factory are inherent in it. And others say, you know, they're separable from it. Certainly, there are lots of things you could do which are not too complicated. You could pay people better. You could have shorter hours. And that would speak to some problems. Is there a more fundamental way of reorganizing production? So, for example, the work itself has more inherent interest. That's not so easy. There have been lots of efforts, but on a mass scale, it so far has not happened. Could the products being made be changed? Well, that's certainly the case. And I think that's a much easier thing actually to do. I mean, you raised this issue about the factory's relationship to a kind of disposable culture. Well, I don't think that's the fault of the factory. It's the fault of a kind of capitalist production system and a set of state policies that sustain it. When you can make more money making lots of cheap stuff that everyone throws away, that's what factories are going to do. That can be regulated. It's not inherently necessary. I mean, I own the bicycle I had as a high school kid. 
uh, made in an English factory, you know, in the 1960s, still perfectly usable, perfectly fine, and not that different from a modern bicycle. If you had incentives, uh, economic incentives, to change the product mix, for example, that you put penalties on disposal, you made disposing stuff expensive, that would change things. You could regulate things. You could simply pass a law that said no car that, that can't, on average, last 300,000 miles can operate on a federally funded roadway or interstate highway. You would change the products that came out of factories and make longer lasting and less disposable things. So this is a question of an economic system and a political will. And I don't think the factory per se is the villain here. It's the people who control these factories, the heads of companies like Apple, right? You know, who have literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of workers in Asia. They don't work for Apple, but they make the Apple products. And those people are making decisions which have huge social implications. So if the broader society gets more involved, maybe we can move a little bit in the direction that you were suggesting in your question. And it's not just the head of Apple, it's all of us, the consumer, who are purchasing these products without asking awkward questions about the origins of the labor of these products and the conditions under which they are made and the reason they are so inexpensive. I, I totally agree with you. I don't disagree at all. But the truth is that we don't think about it because it's not convenient or pleasant. And also, as individuals, we have very little control over this. You know, you could say in a huff, I'm not going to buy a, a you know, smartphone from Apple. So if you buy one from Samsung, it's the same situation. You can say, I'm not going to do without one. That's not going to really change the situation for workers in China. Actually, you know, Tim Cook could change the situation for workers in China all by himself. So I do actually believe in individual accountability. I think people that are controlling these workforces have a lot of moral responsibility. They're not going to change by themselves. They're only going to be changed if they're going to be forced to change. And that's going to require sort of social and political movements that address these questions. I, I certainly agree it isn't one or the other. The same debate comes up in environmental circles. Should we individually be trying to reduce our environmental impact, or should the onus of that change be done on a macro level by governments and the heads of industry? It's both, I think. I, I do think that we individually can change our behaviors to consume less, use less energy, but I also think it's absurd to believe this should only be done on an individual level, that the responsibility should only be on individuals. Change should come from above. No, I agree with you. I think you're right. But I think also we have to contextualize consumer decisions in the broader context. You know, most Americans can't afford to buy well-made, durable things. Right. They don't have any money. So unless you change the whole economic and social context, consumer decision-making power is very limited. So, you know, it's a complicated question, but I think it's, it's, it's the surroundings of the factory more than the factory itself that are actually critical uh, in this discussion. Professor Freeman, thank you so much. Uh, we've already taken up a lot of your time. To wrap up, could I just ask, is there anything you're working on now that you would be willing to share with us? Well, I've been writing some short pieces. You know, I think like everybody else, the COVID pandemic has started me thinking about 
previous epidemics. So I've written some about labor during the 1918-1919 pandemic, which actually coincided with a great moment of labor militancy and, and thinking about that era some too. And I've also been exploring the immediate post-World War II period, which is a period of kind of great hopes and fears and sort of trying to think a little bit about to what extent were some of those hopes realized and why some of them weren't. But I'm not sure yet what form ultimately writing about that will take. So it's, it's still kind of fielding my way forward in this very strange time. Fascinating. I think everyone has been impacted by and impressed by this pandemic. So I'm certain there will be a great deal of interest on anything you have to write about it. So that piece on labor during the 1918-1919 pandemic sounds especially fascinating right now. And of course, the post-World War II period is, is a fascinating time. Professor Freeman, your book is a wonderful introduction to this important and fascinating subject, and I highly recommend it to all of our listeners. Thank you so much for writing it and for your time and insights today. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks, Mark. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with Professor Joshua B. Freeman about his 2018 book, Behemoth, A History of the Factory and the Making of the Modern World. It's a wonderful book. If you are interested in the subject matter, whether an expert or a lay reader, I highly recommend it. The theme music for this episode, and for all my episodes, is composed and performed by Dan Lurch. I'm Mark Molloy, and you've been listening to the New Books and Intellectual History channel of the New Books Network. See you next time.